Listening to Clock Tower Radio on clocktower.org. I'm Jake Nussbaum here with David Colosi. Hello. And we are about to kick off a two hour long appreciation of Albert Eiler. Indeed. And uh, I have a recording uh, interview of Albert Eiler from uh, 1970. Uh, July 27th, 1970, and I thought the best way to do this is to let him tell his story in his own words, uh, and then intercut um, the interview with some of his music. Yeah, so you'll be hearing from us sporadically throughout the next two hours. Um, Mostly you'll be hearing from Albert and his bandmates, and in his own words, uh, telling his story. Indeed. And it is, we are doing this on July 13th, which is his birthday. His, what would have been his 80th birthday. I was born in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, July 13th, 1936. And my father, he played... Um, saxophone, violin, and a singer. And he wasn't very popular, uh, you know, like all over the world, but he was just local. He was local. So therefore, when I was born, he wanted me to be known all over the world, see. And my mother, she was just a mother. She wasn't, you know, artistically inclined. She was just a mother. And so when I was... um, Three years old. When I was three years old, um, uh, I used to listen to um, music played by Lionel Hampton, uh, and they had a big radio. And I used to go back to to see where the music was coming from. See, and when I would put my hand back there, I would get shocked. Yeah, I would get shocked, like you know. And and my mother would hit my hand, and say, "No, don't do that. Don't do that." But she didn't understand that I was an artist. And, very young because of my father see so so uh, like at four years old I started playing uh, I have a footstool a small footstool I used to sit on when I was a little boy sit on I start pick the footstool up and play along with uh, Benny Goodman when he would be playing on the radio I would play it I would play the footstool play the footstool and then uh, my father said it's talent he has he has talent he may be an artist and I'll start him to playing music so when I was seven years old I would I started out um, he would teach he, he started me into the music you know and like when the guys would be out playing uh, baseball and whatnot he would be beating me with a strap I was little boy then and I would cry I had short pants see and the tears would roll down I would be like this tears rolled down my leg he beat me like that I thought it was very bad, but I guess it was it was good for good to keep me away from playing and stay in and learn learn the music, you know, because it was like he was rebelling. He wanted to be what I was, 
you know. You understand what I'm saying? He wanted to be what be what I was because he was just known locally, but not all over the world. So he taught me, uh, say, uh, four four years.
years old, I was called a child prodigy at that time in uh, Cleveland. I was called a child prodigy. And <clears throat> I played uh, at a, a place where it was like a, a number of talented kids that were playing there, but I won the uh, first prize. And at uh, the age of um, 11 years old, I started Benny Miller's Academy. My father could teach me no more. I could I could read at the age of nine I was reading music like that I was reading I was ahead of what I was doing you know at at at, at the age of nine so at the age of uh, ten years old I studied at the Benner, Benny Miller Academy Benny Miller was a man who had played with uh, uh, Charlie Parker Miles Davis at a at the club in Cleveland, uh, Tijuana, club in Cleveland, Tijuana, and his people was very rich. His people was very rich, so I studied at the academy there in music, and I studied there about, uh, we'd say, uh, uh, seven years. Seven years I studied there. About that time, I started uh, sitting in then, getting known locally with, uh, with uh, other musicians when I was 15 years old, and so 16, that's when I started. Uh, I met Little Walter and uh, uh, Lloyd Price. I played just with sit-in in clubs. I didn't understand the situation of uh, <clears throat> the music where it would carry me at all. I couldn't understand exactly where the music would carry me. So I started sitting in, and, I, and by me going sitting in, I started seeing a different kind of life. See, I wore short pants until 16 years old. You know, until 16 year old, years old, the kids used to laugh at me because I had short pants. They'd say, oh, oh, what's, what's the matter? Why should he wear short pants? He should have long pants. See? You know, so the, the kids would say, you know, Why, what, what is he? But my mother was very particular. She wanted me to be special. I had to be special to my, for my mother, for my mother, you know. So I started traveling with uh, little Walter at the age of... Uh, 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 17, at the age of 17, you know, like I wasn't out of school yet. I was still in high school. I was still in high school. So while, while playing with him, the, it was, the going was tough for me. I, I couldn't understand what it was in the music, how, how it would be for me to travel on the road so abruptly because we, would, we played Sacramento, Michigan one night, then we had to travel uh, all night long. They would be drinking, sleep driving. And then I say, music, is this music? Do I have to live like this? What is this? You know, but, but it, was, it was okay because it was a good experience. It was a good experience for me. I had to like carry my food in a bag because it wasn't much money at that time. You know, I was like very young. I was too young to be involved with that kind of life because I had never lived that kind of life because my mother kept me special. All the time kept me special, see?
Appreciation of Albert Eiler, July 13th, 2016. And we'll give you a, a rundown of, of the different music we've been listening to. I think David's got it over there. I do. Uh, so the interview that I'm uh, playing from is with Daniel Coe for French Culture, July 27, 1970, in St. Paul de Vence, France. Uh, I think it was after the last live known recording of Albert. Uh, And then the first song we heard after that was Leapfrog, uh, when uh, Eiler was in the U.S. 76 Adjutant uh, General's (coughs) Army Band in Orléans, France, uh, September 14, 1960. And after that we heard uh, Summertime uh, with the Herb... Herb Katz, Herbert Katz from Helsinki from June 30th, 1962. And then the record you're hearing now and the two songs we heard previously, uh, the record is called Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. The first song we heard was Old, Re- Old Man River, Take Two. And then we heard following that, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. And then the one we're currently listening to is called Going Home. Uh, And this was recorded on February 24th, 1962 in New York at Atlantic Studios uh, with Eiler, Cole Cobbs, Henry Grimes, and Sonny Murray. Um, And then the song just before this we heard was uh, Good Bait, and that was recorded on October 25th, 1962 in Stockholm. And that's on uh, the first recordings, volume two. So, so we've kind of set the stage for the raw explosion that's going to be happening from yes. here on out, maybe, with Albert's music. But uh, you can kind of hear, even in that, even in Good Bait and Summertime, sort of the, the roughness yeah, he's of his finding tone his was starting to emerge. Yeah, he's finding that, like, bare sound on the te- on the tenor b-e-a-r and b-a-r-e i right. think both <laughs> yes, would apply both. yeah it's funny to hear these early recordings because they're so 
slow and so smooth and just as you know spiritual as something that all he referred to all of his music being and I mean this is where you know this is where he comes from <laughs> uh, so to go from this to where we you know most commonly know him from it's good to start with this to get a sense of that so we're gonna go back now to Albert in his own words and keep playing the music So while traveling, playing with uh, little Walter, I would hold, I said, pa! He said, no, you don't hold a note long enough. Hold a note long enough because, see, uh, the country soul and where I was from was a little difference. Little difference because it was a middle class where I was from in Cleveland, see? It was middle class, but the, the country, they were living right, right with it, see? But I wasn't, I wasn't uh, living right with it because I, had, I wasn't born in the country. You understand? So... I saw it, I say, these people are a little bit different than, than me, or something was wrong. So I started holding the note and getting it good, you know, and before I know, I just fit right in, fit right in with him. So I played with him the whole summer, then after that summer, that was it. And, and while in school, I played uh, golf, and I was like the golf captain in school, you know. I was like the first black man in the school to ever, ever win a trophy for the school. You know, in other words, I could have played golf and I could have been rich now, but music was in my heart. See, I had to, I had to, uh, I had to do that. <clears throat> 19 now, yeah. Uh, around that time, um, I had formed a little band myself in Cleveland, playing blues and rhythm, formed a little band myself. I said, well, maybe I could uh, uh, do something with that, you know. <clears throat> and while I formed the band in Cleveland, I noticed the living was... Uh, it wasn't the kind of thing I, I had been grew up in. I knew it was a little bit different because it was playing on the corner and winos and the whole thing. I say, well, maybe I could better my condition. So when I was 22, I joined the army. I joined the army. You know, everybody say, you crazy, you get killed, you die. It doesn't matter. I joined the army to be around people, you know, that play music and the music interests. So when I went into the army, I had a tough CO. He was a, a, a tough guy, you know, he's he very tough. He say, well, Albert, I don't, I don't know. It's, at that time, my reading was slow. Reading, because when you play, uh, like, um, in Cleveland, it was, we play jam. We play as we feel. You don't, you don't read from paper, you know. So he said, well, okay, we'll keep you, keep you in the band. So I went to BTU training unit in the band, and then I started nothing reading is the easiest thing in the world after you familiarize yourself with it you know so I so I started reading and everything was good in the army I used to practice like we would play uh, <clears throat> six hour Orleans Orleans yeah we'd play uh, say like six hours then at, at the end of that I would uh, practice at night practice at night hard I would play I'll play the scale not per note but I would just get one sound one sound, and I play diminished and all kind of different things on the instrument to familiarize myself, hoping to be a be a, a, a great artist one day. But I was I was nothing then at that specific time in Orleans, France. But being in France, I could go to Paris. I could play play at a club in Paris, and I and it was much different. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
So when I went to Sweden, that's when I started to going, going outside. I was working in a uh, different kind of thing altogether, and the people said, beautiful. When I was in Sweden, the people said, beautiful. Then I said, oh, this is, this is, this is, this is beautiful. They said, you, this is what you feel is beautiful. This is what you feel is beautiful. So I say, well, mm, I may have something. So by them telling me this, it made me think after I got out the army to go back to those people to stay for a while because they were like, like, you know, yeah, different, different, but they were like very beautiful musically to me because sometimes when I would play, the people say, no good, I would cry because I was, that's all I could feel. That's all I could feel is what, what I play. So, so what, after I got out, I left um, uh, uh, Orleans and I, I got out of the army in California. That's when I was in California, I started playing and I met Red Fox. I don't know if you know Red Fox. Red Fox, well he, I was playing and he said, uh, he said, the guys, all the musicians, black, said, ah! And Red Fox said, look, if you believe it, play it. That's what Red Fox said, you know? And it was, that was like, that was like very beautiful. So after I got out of the army, I went back to Cleveland. And while in Cleveland, I told my mother, I said, I'm going to Sweden to live. Finish here, finish. Mentality stupid, finish. <laughs> I'm going, going to Sweden. She said, you crazy. You can't leave, you can't leave me. You can't leave me, you can't leave me. I said, well, I have to go where somebody can understand me where I was at because I didn't quite understand myself because the music hadn't quite formed in my head yet. I was playing it, but it was slow. It's not like it is now fast, you know? It's, it was slow, so I caught a plane going to um, Sweden. And when I got to Sweden, the Swedish people, uh, it was uh, kind of like that. So I had to play commercial music. I had to play with some uh, guys from uh, Ken Hunter was his name. I had to play commercial, Calypso, and whatnot. But I, I hated to play that. I hated to play that. So every chance I would get, I would go to the old town in uh, Sweden and play for the, the young people. Play for the young people, the very, very young people. And then after a while, a guy met a guy named Bit Nostrum. He said, Albert, I want you to make a record. I said, well, um, I didn't know if I should make a record then because I felt I wasn't developed like I wanted to be developed. You understand? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he said, it's, it's, uh, it's necessary you make a record. So I go into the studio and it was like, um, it was like uh, uh, 25 people there. And when I started playing, the people, the people was, seriously, they were all artists. They wasn't the people that, the ordinary people, you know? So I made the record, and he said, good. He said, good, this is good, it's a good, good record. I said, oh, it's okay, okay. <clears throat> and so after the record was made, Denmark called me, wanted me to make a radio show, Ole Vestergaard, Ole Vestergaard. He said, you come here, and we'll give you uh, money to make a radio uh, show. So I went to, uh, after I made the record in Sweden, I went to Denmark, and I played uh, the radio show. When I played the radio show, he said, we must make a record. It's Bye Bye Blackbird, Summertime. Yeah, CT, all, all beautiful. All beautiful, you know. So, <clears throat> he, after I finished there, I was playing in uh, 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 a place in Sweden, uh, close to Denmark. What's the name? It was like very cold. And I was playing with a guy named Candy Green. He's a guy from Texas, sing like Ray Charles. Yeah, we would play there. They would give us um, uh, two meals a day, two meals a day, and we'd have to be there at noon to play. 
noon to play, see? And then we'll play at, at night. So when I tell Candy Green I must go to play the uh, radio, so radio tape in Denmark. So when I go play the radio tape, I played the radio tape. Then when I come back, I didn't speak to him. I couldn't speak to him. I had to go to America because I had played a little with Cecil Taylor. Cecil Taylor, I like Cecil Taylor a lot, but he's just too, too hard. He's, I like smooth myself. I like my smooth, but he was a, he's like a very great artist. I had played with him a while, so I left there. I uh, started playing with Cecil at the Take Three. We played, and Eric Dolphy and Coltrane used to come in here. Sonny Murray, Jimmy Lyons, uh, Henry Grimes, and myself, and Cecil. You know, we had it beautiful. And Eric would, would come in to, to listen with Coltrane after they finished at the Village Gate. Because they knew it was some new music that was happening that was, like, very strange. They couldn't understand it, but they could feel it. We would, we would play, and Cecil would, uh, we would make uh, $5, and he would give it to us. He had nothing. He had nothing. He would give us a, a dollar for food the next day so we would come back to play the next day with him because he loved music more than uh, maybe a lot of the other musicians, I think, you know.
You are listening to an appreciation of Albert Eiler on Clock Tower Radio. Clocktower.org. I'm Jake Nussbaum, and we are being led through this journey by David Colosi. Uh, yes, and um, yes, this is the Albert Eiler appreciation uh, for Albert Eiler's what would, have, what would have been his 80th birthday. Um, and the songs we heard before the last interview break were uh, Ghosts, uh, second variation from Spiritual Unity. And that was July 10th, 1964. Uh, and that was an ESP um, release. Uh, after that, we heard Prophecy uh, from Bell's Prophecy, which Prophecy was recorded at Cellar Cafe, New York City, June 14th, 1965. That was also an ESP release. And then just before what we're listening to right now was uh, Omega is the Alpha from Live in Greenwich Village at the Village Theater in New York City, February 25th, 1967. Uh, and right now in the background is uh, Holy Family from Spirits Rejoice, recorded September 23rd, 1965 at Judson Hall, New York, uh, also an ESP release. Um, and I guess I should say that Omega is the Alpha and Holy Family. Uh, those two songs, I think, are probably my favorite Eiler tunes. <laughs> just because he takes these simple melodies and just like keeps twisting them and twisting them and repeating them. And, um, and they just morph into these really simple melodies that you can hum, you can whistle, but then they sort of twist. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I remember reading about... Uh, Charlie Parker that towards the end of his career his, his solos would develop until he was just playing like one continuous note oh, really? for, for you know for minutes at a time yeah. he just wouldn't leave that note and it's interesting to think about how um, impro- improvising over a single melody like where the simplification happens is it or the or where the depth happens is uh-huh. is the depth happening in your ability to hear or is it happening in your ability to play and where those things converge i think is really interesting for Eiler because uh at a certain point he you you sense that he's able to hear an infinite number of things in the simple things that he's playing but then he's also to, also able to play an infinite number of things out of these simple melodies so there's just an interesting inversion that happens with him yeah yeah and it is a lot of it is a lot of repetition but it's it's like never the same each time right which is interesting and it's funny you mentioned Charlie Parker because some people you play Albert Eiler for them and they're like wow I can't listen to that it's too it's too crazy and I kind of feel the opposite with Charlie Parker sometimes I'm like I can't quite listen to that. And most saxophone players hate me when I say that, but um, I'm much more comfortable listening to the crazier Eiler stuff than um, Charlie Parker. What? I mean, talk about how Albert Eiler is important to you and what you do. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I guess I sort of found it. Well, a friend of mine, uh, my friend Paul Gillenhammer, teaches philosophy at St. John's College in Queens. Um, he just emailed me. Uh, um, what was the recording? Live in Greenwich Village. Or he didn't email me. He just sent me, actually, he burned two discs for me. And I was like, what is this? Mm-hmm. And I listened to it, and I got a lot of great music from him over the years. Um, and around that time, I was on Governor's Island uh, teaching myself how to play the saxophone after a you know, long break from when I was 10 years old. <laughs> um, and I don't know. It's just something, well, when you're teaching yourself how to play the saxophone, starting with a bugle call, starting with a simple nursery rhyme, nursery rhyme um, you know, that sort of Coltrane, my favorite thing, sort of, um, you know, this little melody starting with that and then twisting it into something else. When you're first playing, you can get the bugle call, you know, pretty quickly. And then because you don't know what the hell you're doing, you can make it sound crazy and insane <laughs> pretty easily too. But of course, the art of it for Eiler, for Coltrane, for all these guys who are amazing, which is different from someone who's just learning, is they really found a way to integrate it and unify it all um, and make it something interesting as opposed to someone just kind of practicing. But it was sort of that, that play, like how do I how do I take these th- two things that I can do? I can make noise and I can play a bugle call, but how do I do what they do with it? Or, or not do what they do, but how do I make something that's my own out of it? Um, so I guess that's what kind of interested me at first. And then playing on Governor's Island, you know, you're right at the East River, um, you know, New York Harbor, um, you know, as everyone knows, that's where Eiler's body was found. So playing to the river became, uh, you know, it's like, okay, here's, you know, he was in this river, you know, maybe he's listening kind of thing. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so, there's so much to to think about with him. I, I often feel like all of his recordings, no matter where, when they're from, what period of time they're from, they all just sound so old in this way that I can't figure out. Like, you know, some of them sound hundreds of years old, almost. Some of them, but they're they're always locked in the past somehow. Yeah. And it's it's not the same feeling I get from other free jazz saxophonists or other you know there's plenty of there's plenty of players from that era who I hear music and it sounds kind of fresh or new so there's something so like caught in the past or something related linked to something very very old in everything he does even even the crazy craziest improvisation which at the time was like people hadn't heard anything like that before even when i hear that i'm like you know this could be like an egyptian street somewhere or it could be a a dance in enlightenment era france that we were just talking about like there's something yes yeah yeah, right it's like a big ball ball right yeah and i can't it's kind of this amazing quality of his music that i can't quite figure out what where that comes from in it just that it's all like it's always there yeah yeah um yeah I don't know there's something something 
you can whistle it parts of it you can whistle and sing along and other parts you're just like uh, i don't know what to do <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so, yeah, I guess let's, we'll... Let's roll back in. Let's let him... We've done enough talking. <laughs> let's All let right. him get back into telling his story. And we'll carry on uh, with our appreciation of Albert Eiler here on Clock Tower Radio. Yeah, and actually, incidentally, what we're listening to right now is Masonic Inborn from, uh, uh, I believe it's Newgrass, uh, where uh, Albert was playing the bagpipes, but that's much later. Uh, so we'll get back into the interview right now. That time, I had uh, Ole Vestergaard call me and said, I could fix a job for you. I could fix a job for you. And that was um, a 64, 64. He said, I could fix a job for you in Denmark playing for the Danish people. I said, beautiful, beautiful. I would love to, love to do it. He said, but I could only send you one-way fare. Then I thought, I said, one-way fare? How am I going to get back? Then I say, what the heck, let's go. So I got Sonny Murray, Gary Peacock. At that time, Gary Peacock was like, uh, he had fast 15 days with no food, no anything. He would just get up and go to the bathroom. And so when I went over to see him, he was like, he was like shriveled up. I looked at him, he smiled, looked at me and smiled. I said, why you do this? I didn't understand at that time. Why you do this, Gary Peacock? Gary Peacock, why you do this? He said, he said to me, I must do this. I have dissipated a lot in my life, and you play pure music. This is what he told me. So when we got to the studio, I could understand then, you know. <clears throat> so we made, the, we made the trio record before going to Europe for Bernard Stoneman ESP. We made that. We made this one. And then we got on the plane going to Europe with Don Cherry, uh, Sonny Murray, yeah, and um, uh, myself. So, like, when we got to Denmark, the people was, was uh, at that time, they didn't know, you know, they didn't know if the music, if they liked the music or not. So we had a, a, f- a few times, it was, it was pretty hard, but the, it was a few guys, the guy that owned the radio station in Denmark, uh, he was, like, crazy about me. Like, see, you know, and I could go by his house and just play with his kids and have a good time. So he told the people, he said, this free music will be good. I may not be living, he told him. This beautiful guy, he said, but this free music will be valid one day, like it, like it is now. And that was like a long time ago. So we played the tour, and uh, we, Sonny Murray had to catch a troop ship back with the troops because he didn't save his money. He mailed his money to his wife and whatnot. But Peacock, he was like, he passed out in uh, Amsterdam. He passed out because he was, he was uh, on, uh, only eating rice, autobiotic uh, diet. He was only eating rice, so he passed out in um, Amsterdam. And he was like laying there and he had to put a pan of water on his stomach. Pan of water. The reason I'm so, talking so much about Peacock, because he's like the best bass player that I ever met. When I just, when I, we get together, we just, just play. We don't even talk, we don't have to talk about it. You know, the other musicians, you have to talk about it some, you know, but we just play, you know. It's not, it was nothing to it. So <clears throat> Peacock had to um, leave Amsterdam going back to the States. So I left Amsterdam going to Denmark. And this is where Sonny caught the troop ship. Then I came back to America very frustrated, not understanding what, what, where everything was going, not understanding anything. All I knew, I loved Charlie Parker. I used to listen to Coltrane in the Army. This is all I knew. 
and all I knew. And when I was small, my father used to have me listen to Illinois Jacket, you know, and Big Red, Big Red that played uh, with Lyle Hampton. They used to walk down the aisle, the old, the old bit, you know, and I was like very young. So, so after that, I didn't understand what was happening. What was happening? I was living pure frustration like a madman, like a madman. I was up in my room when I went to Cleveland playing, and I was beating like this on the floor. Then I'd go downstairs. My mother said to me, I don't think you are my child. When I was in the hospital, the man must have made a mistake and give me the wrong baby. <laughs> made me cry. I cried, but I thought I'd say, hmm, nobody understands what... what uh, music what I'm trying to do and I'm trying to understand it so when I play uh, go back to uh, New York Arne Coleman Cecil Taylor Eric Dolphy uh, Sonny Rollins and all the musicians sit around were sitting around and Coltrane was playing there that day so Eric uh, Coltrane started off remember that and then uh, Eric Dolphy started playing and then when I started playing Somebody stood up and said, no, and leave the club. And I couldn't understand it. And then Eric told me, he said, uh, you're the best I ever heard. Stick with what you're doing. Let nobody stop you from what I'm doing. And this is what Earl Gardner told me also in uh, uh, Holland. Hey, 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 hey,
close to where I played for at Place Playel. When I came with Michelle Sampson, met Michelle Sampson, Bill Falwell, they both was like uh, under 25, very, you know, they could understand. The, the, that's when the new generation was starting in America around that time, you know. <clears throat> and then, you know, from there, when I come here and I play, you know, the whole bit traveling. I, funny thing, I was traveling with uh, uh, the Newport Jazz Festival, I was playing last everywhere I would go, but in America I didn't even know that the people here even knew about it. They knew about the music, what was happening, because I knew the mentality here was uh, uh, much greater than it was in America, because America was like something else. They were, they were only crafty after money and whatnot. 
you know, they didn't understand. They didn't understand what the music is about. But now they seem to be understanding a little ground. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so after that, I went back to uh, the States, and that's when uh, uh, about the cold time cold train died. Yeah, about the time cold train died. That's the time. Yeah, that's the time that uh, about around the time I met Maria. Then, yeah, when she started writing writing music for me, and uh, cold train uh, Bob Theo called me and said. Uh, uh, Albert, you know something? I said, what? He said, Coltrane is dead. I said, no, you're joking, because he was a, like, you know, it's so beautiful. He, he never, never did get mad with anybody, you know? <clears throat> and then she said, I want he, his last request was for Arnie Coleman and for you to play at his funeral. I thought, I said, mm, how could I do that? How could I play crying? His body down there, right, and you know, died. and we was like upstairs, upstairs on the top, and they had a big organ, had a big organ, and he was downstairs on the on the uh, bottom floor. So the day before the funeral, we walked, remember we walked, we walked in to see Coltrane. He was like very, very stiff because he was very sick, but he didn't complain to people, which I thought was like very beautiful because his wife didn't even know it because they had about uh, three kids. And she was so busy watching the kids that she didn't know that he was actually sick at all. So, so he got so sick at one point, she looked at him, she said, come on, we got to go to the hospital now. And then he was like unconscious then, see? So he said, okay, okay, because he was thin then. But he was um, with a, a guy from India. They would pray together. They would sit and pray together for him to be healed of his sickness, whatever it was. I did I don't still know today what it exactly what it what it is because many people speak many things about his sickness but nobody really knows exactly what it exactly what his what his sickness was. So at the funeral that day we played Love Cry. Yeah. Bob Theo's in the audience to you know, Bob Theo's in the audience and and <clears throat> Arnie Coleman played first and I played I played last. I played the truth marching in and then Bob Thiel called me in, called me, called me in to, to sign a contract. Then when I signed the contract, everything was a little bit better. Because, that, you know, if you sign a contract, see, Sunrise doesn't have a contract with any company. I don't, I can't understand why he doesn't have a contract, but he doesn't have a contract. But at that time, that's when I started, every, everything started, the ball started moving then. Everything was beautiful then.
the Albert Eiler celebration continues on Clock Tower Radio, clocktower.org, hosted by David Colosi, the mastermind behind this project. Give us, tell us what we've been, what we've been hearing. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm a mastermind. I just wanted to do it to sort of appreciate Eiler's music. Um, uh, which didn't get much appreciation. He got some appreciation in his time, you know, from other jazz musicians. They all knew him, but popularly, uh, wasn't all that appreciated. Um, but before I talk about what we just heard, uh, I did want to correct earlier. I said Masonic Inborn Part One. I said it was from Newgrass, but it's actually from Music as the Healing Force of the Universe from 1969. Uh, so just to correct that. And then after that interview sequence, we heard uh, Love Cry, uh, which is it's the studio recording of Love Cry where Albert is playing alto and uh, there's some vocals. And that's recorded at Capitol Studios, New York, August 31st, 1967. And after that, we heard Truth is Marching In from... Uh, de la Fondation May. Uh, sorry, I can't really pronounce that. Uh, it's his last live recording from July 25th and July 27th, 1970 in St. Paul de Vence, uh, France. It's the same time he gave this interview that I've been excerpting from. Um, and then after that, we actually heard his recording from John Coltrane's funeral, which was a medley of Love Cry, Truth is Marching In, and Our Prayer. Uh, and that was July 21st, 1967 at St. Peter's Lutheran Church in New York. And that that's just a wild recording. I mean, it ends with him... Just screaming just in the screaming, background. Wa- wailing, really, yeah. is the word. Wailing. But it almost sounds like a... You could mistake it for a trumpet, almost. It's so yeah. kind of even in its tone. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you were talking about Donald Eiler earlier, and you can hear in the background of that, he's sort of holding the melody with the trumpet <laughs> while Albert is sort of screaming in the, in the foreground. Yeah, Donald, Donald is Albert's brother, and sort of I was reading that his role described as basically to, to state the themes... So that the so that Albert could kind of go in any direction he wanted to around the theme. So Donald sort of holding it down and making sure that major thematic moments get struck, and the band sort of knows where they are, so that Albert can can be free. Yeah, and I think they did. They both did work off each other. I think Albert let Don sort of take over the improvising too, and they sort of played. You know, one of them would pick up the melody and the other one would improvise. And um, I mean, he was an amazing trumpet player uh, in his own right. Um, uh, so, and what we're listening to right now, which is just about to end, is just a, a track called uh, Blues uh, in parentheses. Um, and this one and the, the recording from the Coltrane funeral are both from the Holy Ghost uh, box set. Uh, disc number six, um, which the Holy Ghost box set is a is an amazing um, collection of like eight uh, eight CDs 
uh, in recordings and books and has all sorts of paraphernalia inside of it, like pressed flowers and photos of, or I should say memorabilia, not paraphernalia, mm-hmm. um, things like that. And it's a, it's a great um, box set uh, published by Revenant. Uh, but right now, we're going to go back to uh, the last sequence of the interview and then uh, a couple of songs and then sort of wind it up. Yeah, I mean, I guess just very quickly, this is sort of the point in Albert's career when the, the pressures maybe start getting to him and you'll hear some some influences that might be surprising from someone who the, whose music is so authentic and, and spiritual but he maybe gets a little sidetracked with like r&b rock influence the the need to to produce for a market uh seems to have affected him in this era um yeah we'll, yeah, we'll let to him think about we'll let him <laughs> kind of talk about it a little bit and then we'll we'll go from there but here is albert eiler And from there till now, like, everything was smooth because I met Maria, and she takes care of writing, talk to people, business, and everything. And I sleep, and I take care of my music. (laughs) For (laughs) still? And it's, you know, it's a a blessing for me to meet her because she takes care of everything. I just, I can sleep and rest of all the suffering long time ago. I could, I caught up so a couple years, then we uh, had the idea, she had the idea of of the New Grass. Bob Thiel wanted me to make the uh, New Grass album. He said he wanted me to play with a young group for just a couple minutes. They were like equivalent in America to the Beatles uh, in England, see? And I said, no, I would like to stick with my own thing if I can. If I have to play pop music, let me get the men together and play the music, you know? And so he said, okay, it's time for you to make new grass. You have to sing. I said, me sing, you know, like I'm blowing my brains out. I said, okay, I have to sing. So I played in a club in the village. Can't remember the name of the club, but that's when I started singing. And the first couple of nights, I started getting real hoarse. I said, oh, playing was bad enough, but to sing too, you know. And so it was time to, for to go in the studio. Then Maria started thinking. She started thinking, started thinking real hard. She said, well, I'll get it to everybody's moving in a different direction, new different generation, hard love. And she just started writing, going crazy, around, around the house all night long, you know. Then I may thank God for women myself, you know. I may thank God for women myself. So after that, I figured, I said, well, in America, I'll play pop, I'll play free. I can play anything. i play a variety of music, so maybe it'll be okay. But it's still, so I said, well, maybe the American people just don't understand. I should have been uh, maybe over here by that time, see? I should have, after I made new grants, I should have maybe been in Europe somewhere around that time. But I said, well, I'm going to give the American people uh, uh, another chance, you know? They deserve that. They deserve another chance. So I stayed and... And the next record I made, nothing happened with that. I said, well, shoot, you know, but I still had the contract. And each time I would play, uh, each year the, the money would uh, double. Each year the money would double. So I wasn't worried. Uh, last year, uh, $10,000, you know, and it was beautiful. We paid paid off everything. Bills. <laughs> we had bills, people we owed, you know, and the whole living the complete life of art. I have heard there have been some... Uh, French composers who have died of starvation with music stacked like that over their heads, you know? 
Yeah, I heard in Paris. That's what I heard. Some guys would tell me. So I figured, I listened to that. I know this monk took 20 years for him to make it. He had the piano in the kitchen, in the kitchen playing all night long, round about midnight, all night long, you know, in the bathroom close to that. I say, well, the artist's life is very hard. So I must adjust myself now because if it takes him 20 years, and I know men who have died, like Charles Ives, the greatest composer in America, the greatest composer in America, he had never, while he was living, nobody even recognized him at all. He had to get a, a, a different job altogether. A different, I thought that was very bad because in the last year I heard uh, two conductors, they had over 100 pieces playing one of his compositions. And I thought, you know, like, <clears throat> but that's the way the life of an artist and you have to accept it. So that's what I was, what I tried to do. But I still had my brother to content with who was like a very great artist in his own right. And he was like here and I was like there, you know, and I'm, we trying to uh, talk to each other. But when we talk, he doesn't hear me and I don't hear him. We just be screaming at each other like the music was, <laughs> like the music was. So, so um, from there, that's, I guess that's, That'll be good enough for an interview, don't you think? Yeah, that's good enough, huh? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's good enough.
This is the conclusion of our celebration of Albert Eiler here at Clock Tower Radio, clocktower.org. I'm Jake Nussbaum with David Colosi. And uh, really hope you've enjoyed listening to this stuff as much as, much as I have, David. Uh, yeah, I definitely enjoyed listening to it. <laughs> but I hope everyone else did too. Um, but yeah, in the last two songs, both from uh, Newgrass, September 5th, 1968 was that recording new generation and everybody's moving you could see the influence from the record company to ask him to sing to get a little more poppy a little more sort of rock and rolly rhythm and bluesy but still he retains that that sort of rawness the deepness of his saxophone and also that higher register that altissimo and he figures out how to incorporate that into what's a pop song or we were joking in the well you were listening how it could be like a sitcom theme song almost <laughs> announcing who's going to be on the show but Newgrass is actually a really fun album um, you know for that late sort of Eiler sound um, and then thinking of that in terms of this song that we're playing now which is again from uh, Swing Low Sweet Spiritual the record we played at the beginning you can kind of see the path that he traveled, um, you know, from these really slow kind of spiritual tunes to those later ones, uh, which kind of also have that same sort of spiritual thing that he was after. Um, and I guess what I wanted to do just before we end is just list a few things, um, like for anyone who's interested in Albert Eiler. There's a great documentary called My Name is Albert Eiler directed by Casper Collin. Uh, it was released in Sweden in 2007. And it was actually, I think right when it was released, uh, Donald Eiler died uh, at the same time, or right around the same time. It's a great documentary. I think it's on uh, YouTube, or at least it was last time I checked. Um, and then there's a website, <coughs> just uk that guy named uh, Patrick Regan or Patrick Reagan uh, runs and he's it's just a great website he kind of collects a lot of stuff and he's always adding to it and years ago when I was kind of you know reading a lot about Eiler uh, I got in touch with him just with some questions about some transcriptions on his site and uh, we were talking a little bit about my name is Eiler Eiler the movie and uh, he was like oh I have a Swedish copy I'll, I'll send you a copy <laughs> So uh, he was super generous in um, letting me see that. Uh, and uh, it's just a great website to check out. It's www.eiler.co.uk. As far as books are concerned, there's really only one uh, biography that I know of. Uh, Albert Eiler, His Life and Music by a guy named Jeff Schwartz. I think he wrote in 19... 93 maybe and it's never been published it's just been kind of floating around on the internet sort of word of mouth being passed around that way um and it's you know it's a good a good source i think a lot of some of the information is probably could be updated now but um i'm sure he's actually probably working on it i probably have an old copy and then there's a book as serious as serious as your life by valerie wilmer um that was put out by serpent's tale uh while ago and she's one of the first people to really kind of write about Albert in that way 
And then, of course, the Albert Eiler Holy Ghost box set by Revenant has a good book in it that compiles a lot of writings about Albert Eiler. Uh, so that's our, our appreciation, and yeah. it is his birthday. He would have been 80 years old. Yeah, uh, for, anyone, for anyone curious, Albert Eiler was born July 13th, 1936 at 1.27 a.m. in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. His sun sign is a Cancer, his moon sign is Taurus, and his Chinese astrological sign is the Fire Rat, <laughs> uh, uh-huh. which really s- makes sense if you just let it make sense. The fire it Rat makes a lot of yeah. sense. And then, of course, uh, November. Uh, oh, where am I? Skipping on this. Uh, November fifth. Uh, 1970 uh, he sort of disappeared and then November 25th 1970 his body was found in the the Hudson River Um, and he had a short life 34 years but in 9 years he made some incredible incredible music yeah so thanks for listening thanks Albert yes happy birthday happy birthday Thank you.